0: Uh, thank you very much, Don, and uh, welcome everyone to the uh, Bannister Fletcher Lecture 2020. Um, Sir Bannister Flight Fletcher was an English architect and architectural historian who wrote the standard textbook, A History of Architecture by the Comparative Method. Uh, which uh, used to be the first book that any architecture student bought as they started their course. Uh, At least it was in my day. Probably it comes online these days, but uh, it was a large fat dome and tome. And uh, I think uh, Bannister Fletcher did quite well out of it. And he did support the society just in the way that Don has been uh, saying. And uh, he was a a, a leading member of its committee from uh, the society's inception, uh, right through to the early 50s. So uh, we hold this uh, lecture in his honor and uh, we look for really very special speech- speakers to give it and very pleased that Robert Elms has agreed to give it this year. So uh, before I introduce Robert formally, I just remind you that there will be a discussion after the talk and uh, Robert will answer some questions. So if you have any, you would like to put to him please use the Q&A button on your screen. Now, uh, since 1994, uh, Robert Elms has presented uh, the uh, long-running uh, uh, radio show on BBC London, 94.9, and uh, it's a show that features reports, discussions, call-ins about Greater London, history, architecture, geography, city planning, language of London, uh, the minutiae of London, and you know it's the minutiae of London which really I think uh, members of the London Society are so enthusiastic about. Um, and uh, the uh, programme used to have a regular architecture feature from an uh, old friend of mine and Robert's, Maxwell Hutchinson, and uh, I think for all the work that Robert has done, he is uh, you know, known as the voice of London. So, So who better really, to invite to uh, give the Bannister-Fletcher lecture. And his recent book, uh, London Made Us, headlined by the Independent as a love letter to the capital, is, is clearly absolutely the right credentials for a Bannister-Fletcher lecture. And uh, as uh, you saw on the introduction, uh, Robert is going to talk about how cities need slums. So I look forward to hearing what he has to say about that. Robert, over to you. Peter, thank you
1: very, very much. First of all, can I say how honoured I am to be asked to give the the Bannister-Fletcher lecture? I mean, I'm a kid from a council estate in in, in West London. Secondly, can I say how sad I am that we're not all in some fabulous room together somewhere um, where we could be meeting physically, because that's what cities are good at. And this is a very, very difficult time for all of us who live in cities. I first started thinking about slums when I had one of the last conversations with my mum. My mum was a London girl, if ever there was one. She was born in Pimlico and she died by the Euston Road in UCH. And it was just before she was about to die that I spoke about Notting Hill to her. Now, she married my father in Notting Hill when they were teenagers. And that was our ancestral homeland. And I said to her, literally one of the last conversations we had, I said, Mum, I've always felt I should move back to Notting Hill. And she said, but Robert, Notting Hill's a slum. Because to her it was. Because she hadn't seen that film. She didn't know that Notting Hill had turned from a slum into a Patek Philippe advert. Um, And that it had been gentrified beyond imagination. Now, I don't want this talk to be a, a rant Against gentrification. I think gentrification has brought some wonderful things. It's a double edged sword, it it brings and it takes away. And nor do I have a rose tinted view of the past. And I certainly don't have a romantic view of poverty. My dad died when I was very young. We grew up on a council estate. I knew a bit about poverty. This talk will be more of a concern for the future and a search for balance, perhaps. So when I say cities need slums, what do I mean by a slum? Well, I'll tell you what I don't mean. I don't mean families in bed and breakfast accommodation where four people are squeezed into one room with damp crawling up the walls. Nor do I mean 14 blokes from Eastern Europe in a garden shed in Barkingside. Unfortunately... Both of those are what we currently have, because we what we don't have is swathes of cheap places to live, scruffy places to live, run down places to live. I'll tell you what I do mean when I talk about slums. I mean Notting Hill, Islington, King's Cross, Brixton all areas which not just in living memory but in recent memory would have been considered slums. Let's think about Brick Lane. It was the classic point of arrival. It was where Huguenots arrived when they were were exiled from their land. They were asylum seekers. They came here and they set up their homes in Brick Lane. They were followed by the Irish, they were followed by Jews, they were followed by Bengalis. It's the classic story of a point of arrival. My family found their London, I mean I, I you spoke about my book London Made Us, here's a there's a copy somewhere if I get it the right way around, um, and my family arrived in West London where I've done some research for the book, when my great-great-grandfather walked from a, a a workhouse in Uxbridge, age 14, and walked up the Uxbridge Road and settled in Notting Hill because he could, because places like this were points of arrival. And then my family, years later, were joined by literally by the Windrush generation, by those who stepped off the Windrush in that particular part of London. Could that happen again now? No. Where would those people arrive now? Well, it wouldn't be Brick Lane and it wouldn't be Notting Hill. Where would it be? Give me your tired, your poor and your huddled masses. I'm sure I don't have to tell you where that comes from, but just in case it's on the Statue of Liberty. And if you give me those, I will give you energy, creativity, excitement. I'll give you New York in the late 70s, early 80s when I first went there. I hope you don't mind me stretching this out away from London for a second. New York, when I went there then, was the most exciting city on earth. It was also bankrupt. It was also full of what would now be considered slums. So on the Bowery or in Hell's Kitchen, which has now even been bowdlerised to the state that it's called Clinton. How can you take away a name as magnificent as Hell's Kitchen so that developers can sell it better? Within about five years, New York, when it was bankrupt, when it had places for the young, when it had places for the arrivals, when it had places for the poor and the huddled masses, invented disco, punk and hip hop. Literally, all of those come within five years of the end of the 1970s, from 1975 to 1980, when New York is at its absolute poorest and when it has most places of opportunity. That's also the city of Cassavetes and Scorsese. It's the city where Patti Smith and Robert Mapplethorpe arrive. And if you've ever read their book, uh, Just Kids, you'll understand the New York that they arrived in and that I first experienced. Could they do that in Manhattan now? Well, only if they could afford a thousand dollars a week for a condo with probably a concierge and a, maybe a, a gym and all of those things, is that really what people need in a city when they first arrive? No. I went to Mumbai recently, two years ago, well, 18 months ago. It reminded me of New York in 1979. Yes, it had slums. Yes, it had poverty. And we must always fight against poverty. But it had energy. It had desire. It had creativity. It had great movies. It had all of those things. Compare and contrast that to Times Square now, which has become a branch of Disneyland. But then look at London at the moment. It used to be that there were two blights upon London life. They were town and planning. Look back at the schemes to put a, the London box through London my family actually lost two homes to motorway schemes one to the Westway and one to that bit of road of the London box that joins the Westway from Shepherd's Bush roundabout it's quite unlucky to lose two homes but we would have lost Covent Garden all of it if we'd followed the the town and the planning principles we would have lost Primrose Hill of the King's Road if we hadn't had the King's Road We wouldn't have had punk in London. But can you imagine punk happening on the King's Road now? I love cities when they have no-go zones because those places are exciting. London has no-go zones now. It has Kensington, Knightsbridge. Places which are so dull that I haven't been there for years. It used to be that town and planning were the, the worst words in the London lexicon. Well, now it's luxury and apartments. Those two words are a pox upon London life. Can we ban the word luxury, please? I don't know if any of the people listening to this were involved in the development of Paddington Basin. But if you were. I won't say a word. Paddington Basin. How much? of a missed opportunity was that I was asked years ago what we should do about King's Cross King's Cross which was this venal vital vivid wonderland of warehouse parties and prostitutes and junkies and artists and squatters and I said let's put a fence around it and ban all architects and all town planners from coming anywhere near it. We didn't do that. Instead, we made a very elegant, really well-executed shopping mall, Battersea Power Station. Let's look at that. Um, I spoke to one of the developers of Battersea Power Station on my radio show a few years ago. And he actually said, I said to him, how come the flats around Battersea Power Station are so incredibly expensive? Millions and millions of pounds for a two bedroom flat. And he said, well, first of all, he said, it's prime central London. What? It's F in Battersea. When did Battersea become Mayfair? Then." He said, you can't expect ordinary people to live in places like Battersea Power Station. Well, I'm sorry, where should ordinary people live? Reading. I spoke to a young Londoner recently who said that they'd been forced to live in the outskirts of the city in the east. I said, where? They said South End. That's what's happening. We're pushing people out. We're driving people out we're excluding people developers and their architect henchmen i'm sorry to say that have turned central london or inner london even and battersea sure as hell ain't central london into a coloring book where every space has been colored in it's maximizing everything and usually the maximum is profit this is a city which is being designed by greed being designed by money is that the best basis on which to design a people for a place for people to live i suspect not i grew up in a very shabby city i grew up in a city that was still full of bomb sites in all honesty but it was also full of possibilities culture it seems to me which is what I'm talking about most perhaps is a bit like mushrooms it grows in dark dank places but we've made a conscious effort to exclude all dark dank places from this city of ours let's think about St Giles's shall we Um, you know where St Giles's is or at least you should it's the other side of Soho. It's the other side of the Charing Cross Road from Soho. It's the shadow of Centre Point. which was St. Giles' was the great rookery of 18th century London. Um, we've done everything we can to eradicate St. Giles's. we've put up Renzo Piano's absolutely disgraceful Lego modernist, brightly coloured kindergarten building upon it. As if that wasn't bad enough, we've then built Crossrail. Will it ever open? I don't know. I hope it does. Will it ever open? It seemed to me that the logic for Crossrail was London is a fantastic city. It's so great. Let's knock it down so that more people can see it. I asked where the next generation of Londoners will live. They'll live in Reading because that's what we're doing. They won't live in St. Giles's like the Sex Pistols did. We won't have the Sex Pistols because of that. I genuinely think that we are hollowing out the centre of our city. Let's take a little trip to Paris, another great city. And this has already happened there. Central Paris is now a bourgeois wonderland. The peripherique is where things happen of any interest any excitement any creativity there will never again be a, a little sparrow singing in the streets of leal because we ser- we turned leal into a shopping mall london is more resilient than paris it's more resilient than manhattan because it grows heads and it comes up in amazing places i mean who would have thought that peckham Would be one of the most exciting parts of London. Peckham is only one of the most exciting parts of London because young people can't afford to be in Soho or Covent Garden or St Giles's or anywhere near the centre but Peckham's going, it's going the same way. I saw a young person recently in Peckham and he had a hat on, he had a hat on in the style of the President of the United States of America and it said on his hat Make Peckham shit again. And I know exactly what he means. We need places that are shit. We need places that are scruffy and dangerous and difficult and edgy. We need squats and we need railway arches and we need basements or else you won't get mushrooms or else you won't get culture or else you won't get Bengalis and Jews and Huguenots. The desire to make everything neat and nice and ordered has to stop. Stop doing it under the Westway, which has been a fantastic font of creativity. Stop doing it in Brixton, which has been one of the great motors and the drives of London. Stop doing it at Camden Lock up the road from where I live now. Stop rationalising and maximising Because otherwise, we will have a city where there is no room and no space for the arrivals and for the young and for the artists and the entrepreneurs and the scoundrels. Or else they will be banished out to the periphery. Our centre will be hollowed out. It's not just about houses, this. Slums are not just for people to live in. Although every person's slum is somebody else's home. When my family lived in Notting Hill in the 1950s and 60s, although they lived in rotten accommodation, they lived in the centre of the most vibrant multicultural community in Britain at that time. And that has informed me. That has made the life that I've just had. And when you're young, do you really want a concierge and a gym and all the other frippery of luxury apartments? Oh, you want with Nail and I which was actually written about the street where I live now. You want a Camberwell carrot. And the same is true of nightclubs and raves and businesses and anybody else who can find a crack in the, 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 these overly ordered, overly expensive city that we've been busy creating for the last 20 years. Do you know what I really, really fear? I fear that London will turn into Vienna, the centre of a great former empire where the main excitement and extravagance is eating chocolate and wearing a fur coat, where nothing has been created of any excitement for generations. And Manhattan and Paris aren't very far behind Vienna. London has been stronger because it's a many-headed beast. It's a hydra, which can pop up in Brixton, which can pop up in Peckham, which can pop up in Tottenham. But where next? Barkingside, Reading, if it ever gets connected to, to that disgusting crossrail that we knock down so much for, that we don't need. I'm sorry, I don't mean this to be just a rant. This city is incredible. Its energy is amazing. But that energy has to find a vent. It's like a volcano. It has to come up somewhere. Where are our kids going to live their lives? When this terrible plague is over, where are they going to go dancing? They're not going to go dancing in solo anymore or Covent Garden or where I went dancing as a kid. What happens when you decide... We don't like scruffy places. We don't like slums. Well, you get rid of the Haygate estate. What do you replace it with? It's not just the Haygate. It's all of those nineteen eighties Camden estates. They were considered slums until very recently. Now of course they're on the modern house. And it isn't just the Haygate in the Elephant and Castle. The Elephant and Castle is a real important part of this story. We've we've knocked down and destroyed the Haygate. It was a fantastic piece of architecture. It was home to many people. It had problems, it had issues. Deal with them. Don't knock it down. Don't replace it with something much, much worse. And the same is true of the Elephant and Castle shopping center, which had become a home for the Latin American community in London. That ugly, ugly building, and it was horrible was fantastic because it was a home for people it was a home for people who couldn't afford anything else who could get a toehold in this great city there i tell you what really happens when we decide we don't like slums we don't like scruffy places we don't like edgy difficult dangerous places we don't want that in this nice shiny bright city of ours grenfell happens grenfell happened because the rich people living around it in the richest borough in Britain, Kensington and Chelsea, well, maybe next to the city, but you know what I mean, decided that this scruffy concrete 1970s building that they never liked should be clad in plastic to make it a bit less of an eyesore. But of course, the cheapest plastic, because we don't want to spend money on slums. Grenfell was a slum to some but it was a home to the people who lived in it and it's now a crematorium because we don't like slums. We don't like the poor. We don't like the scruffy. We don't like any of that stuff. We want to eradicate this in this shiny new city of ours where we prefer glass and steel, where we prefer concierges to families Trellick Towers, the Camden Estates that Neve Brown built, the Brunswick, Alexander Road, all of these has been deemed slums in their time. Recently. They're not slums. They're fantastic housing. I used to live in a squat. In a disused fire station in Tottenham in the 1970s, when you still could do when you still could squat. It was legal. And we paid the we took it over and we paid the rates and we paid the rent. And I lived there with my girlfriend of the time and she decided she wanted to be in a band and she started to sing and she started to write some songs. And her name was Sade. And the first song she wrote was called Your Love is King. I like to think it was written about me. Smooth Operator definitely wasn't. And that song suddenly is on top of the pots. Now, we're living in this disused fire station in Tottenham with an outside toilet on the balcony. And the, and it was a great flat, it also had a, f- a bath in the kitchen. Um, so you could sit in the bath and watch your, your pasta boil. Wouldn't have been a great place for a family, but it was a perfect place for a young couple like us, trying to find their way in London and not have to pay tons of rent. And we lived there, but the only problem was, the toilet used to freeze over in the winter. Um, and when she had her first record out, I think it must have been December or January. And the record company sent a limousine to pick Shade up to take her to Top of the Pops to go and sing for her first record. And the toilet was frozen outside. So she peed in a bucket. She was about to be on Top of the Pops and we literally didn't have a pot to piss in. We lived in a slum. We lived in a squat. But we lived here. We lived in London. We lived in a great city that fed great inspiration, that created Sade, that enabled her to write those songs. Where would she be now? As a young, someone who's just come out of art school and trying to to forge a life, where would she be? Parkingside, maybe. I don't know. She certainly wouldn't be anywhere near inner London. It used to be when I was growing up on a council estate that was considered a slum by the rich people who lived around us, that 40 percent of Londoners lived in places like that. Well, let's build some more. right? You know, when you see those big hoardings that we all say and they all say exclusive, executive, luxury, this and that. I really yearn to see a hoarding which says, bog-standard homes for ordinary Londoners. Nothing fancy, nothing great, but a great place to live. What can we do about this? Well, maybe we could put a moratorium on all, and I mean all, private development. None, no more, until every one of those luxury flats that we've been building for the last 20 years with the developers and and their their cohorts in the architectural profession has been sold. Because we don't need any more. We don't need the ones we got. Maybe we can have adverts that don't have champagne glasses or private cinemas or promises of this or that when really all you're buying is a, a, a place to put your money and park your bicycle on that tiny balcony. Maybe we can stop trying to make everything neat, nice, ordered, lovely. Cities are at their best when they're the opposite of that. Cities are at their best when they're ragged and frayed and beautiful and vibrant. Do you prefer Times Square now, when it's basically a branch of Disneyland, Or Times Square when it featured in Midnight Cowboy. I'm walking here. Ritzo wouldn't be walking there now. London plays the long game. It will come through all of this. It will come through this this rotten disease that we're living through now. And this disease gives me a glimmer of hope. There's going to be a lot of empty offices. There's going to be in the city and Canary Wharf and Nine Elms. Nine Elms. It's named after me. What a mess. What a mistake. Battersea Power Station. Centrepoint that is now flats that are £3 million for a one-bedroom flat. Do you know what we should do? Let the squatters in. Let the homeless people in. Let anybody who needs a, a, a roof over their head in. Peter Ackroyd said to me about all the luxury flats that are going up in London. Oh, don't you worry, darling, he said. There'll be slums in 50 years. Well, let's hope it's quicker than that. I think this city will get through all of this and we'll find new places for new people who are the lifeblood of a city, for the creatives, for the young, for the bohemian, for the drunk, let's welcome them and let's give them slums to live in. Thank you very very much for
0: listening. Um, th- thank you very much, Robert, and. Uh... Uh, I'll, I'll do a clap because the room would be full of people cheering and clapping. So thank you very much for that. And uh, you know, I, I think the London Society's official position would be exactly as you say—that uh, London will win out in the long game. I think that that is—we uh, are all—and uh, our official policy is supporting London's resilience as a city. It's ability to change, and I think that change is something that. Uh, you know, we we, we have to, might say, take take on the chin. I mean, you talk about town planning being an issue, and you one could well say that the the Abercrombie Plan of uh, 1944 actually led to 40 years of economic decline in in London as everyone was moved out to uh, Milton Keynes and Hemel Hempstead and Crawley and places like that. But, but what that did was it emptied out all those places where you could squat and uh, uh, and it, it did give those uh, slums that you have at the moment. I think, uh, you know, Peter Ackroyd's point is really uh, an interesting one, very key to this, because I mean, if, for instance, you look at uh, if you look at the Bedford estate, which uh, was fully occupied just before the um, Napoleonic Wars, uh, but you compare that to the Foundling Estate next door, which was still under construction, wasn't completed. Economic decline after the Napoleonic War. Um, the places were filled then, multi-occupation, uh, uh, prostitutes, uh, all the sort of people you mentioned lived in King's Cross before they went, moved into the founding Estate. And that has actually uh, never really recovered from uh, you know the the economic decline of the early nineteenth century, so actually, I think that uh, you know what what you might see as we come out of covid and there are a number of questions relating to this is that uh, you know we we might see uh, some detroitization of of London as the uh, you know you see uh, shops emptying restaurants emptying in in, in the centre office blocks emptying, and uh, you will actually uh, have Uh, some of those uh, slums uh, uh, back again uh, that you can then go and squat in a a tower block somewhere in the city of london
1: well that for me is is the really important issue i don't i'm not i don't want detroitization in terms of poverty and deprivation but i think it's absolutely essential for cities that they enable they have places close to the center and we, we don't want the parisian model where everything is banished to the periphery they have to have places close to the center when those who are not economically advantaged those who do not have cannot afford the the prices can find a a way and a place to live and to work and to dance and to sing and to paint and to do all of those things. And the greatest danger has been the the desire to eradicate that. King's Cross is is the classic example. I mean, I think that what's been done aesthetically with King's Cross uh, has been great and it all looks good and all of that stuff, but it's a shopping mall. It's Westfield a little bit more subtle in all honesty, is that really what we needed there? No, it isn't. We needed a rave and some places for people to live, and that isn't what we've provided. And, and don't start to me about Westfield, and don't start to me about Paddington Basin and these terrible missed opportunities. And who knows what's going to happen at, at Battersea Power Station now. Is anyone ever going to live in those places?
0: But people do actually like going to Westfield, don't they? It's packed every every time I go there. I don't go out very often, but whenever I go there, it's packed. It is, but it's packed with people
1: buying into the corporate notion of what a city is, and that isn't my idea of what a city should be. A city should not be defined by the brands who can charge highest prices. A city, it, it, I'll go back to that New York thing. Manhattan, when I first went there, was the most exciting city on earth. It was also a city close to bankruptcy. And in five years, it created disco punk hip hop. That will not happen again from New York. There is no possibility while Manhattan is full of people who have to earn $100,000 a year just to get a toehold. So we have to, in order to keep a balance. Now, I'm not in favour of poverty, but poverty has energy and affluence Stymies. It likes things to stay the same because they're rather good, thank you very much. So we need, in order to get change, and I love change and I love momentum, London has to allow in the poor. It has to allow in the arrivals, the new. And I think Brick Lane, how could someone arriving from Bengal or Huguenot France or, you know, in a kinder transport, how could they live on Brick Lane now? They can't. And that's what we're doing. That's the danger.
0: Right. OK, well, we should go to some of these questions and comments on uh, the Q&A panel. And I've just noticed that uh, uh, Denise has responded to my comment here by saying uh, Westfield is packed with young people who shop because they can't afford a home of their own. (laughs) And uh, Vivian Ramsey says Westfield Stratford is packed with local kids hanging out and not spending much. So, um, well, uh, there we are. So uh, let's start. The uh, first question came in from Annison Homewood, and there are several others like, like this. Do you think that office blocks in central London will become the new slums, given that so many company, companies will be working from home and they'll be redundant?
1: I hope so. I really hope so, because I think the centre of city should be peopled by people. Um, they shouldn't just be offices, that terrible 1960s notion that you live out in the suburbs and travel into the centre. And we have excluded people from the centre. We, we, for, for years now, we've been banishing people to the edges and let them come in. But I, you know, I'm, I want to be tough about all of this. I want to do it with no recompense for the people who built those buildings or own those buildings. I, 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 as far as I'm concerned, I think they should just be given to the poor.
0: Right, so back to the days of squatting, really, isn't it? Yeah, which uh, you could I, do. You I, I, be I, I remember those days well uh, uh, too, Robert. So uh, you're absolutely right. They were a very uh, creative period. and
1: Very creative. Then, you wouldn't anarchists, have had the clash, You wouldn't have had the sex pistols. You wouldn't have had any of these things if it wasn't for that, for that movement and that era. Yes, what happened to the anarchists? Well, I'm right. not an anarchist. But I think a little bit of the spirit of anarchy in a city is a very good thing. I think we've, we've had a city which has given in to the notion of order and cities should be disordered. It, it, I'm not a big fan of housemen. I like cities that rise up from below rather than are imposed from above.
0: Yes. Well, London is rather more interesting than Paris, even now, yeah. for, for exactly that reason. So here we have an anonymous attendee who's actually saying, what are your thoughts on the redevelopment near Loftus Road? That sounds like a football question, isn't it? But, uh, no, it's not a football
1: attendees. question. It's a White City question. Um, <sighs> Loftus Road is in the middle of the White City estate, which is where many of my family lived. And, and I, I love the White City estate, although for many years it would have been considered a slum. It was a sink estate, as they dared to call them. Um, and now it's being surrounded by very kind of faux posh developments. I quite like that. Because one of the things I like about London is that rich and poor should be cheek by jowl. That's the London way. It was the lay. It was the way when man, the mansions of Mansion House were just yards away from the the slums of, shore di- of whatever ditch. Um, so it's always been the way in London. Bloomsbury was next to St Giles's, literally Bloomsbury Square, right—you know, hundred yards away. Bedford Square, hundred yards away. So that's how it should be. But what we've been doing is negating that. We've been pushing the poor out of all of their inner London places. Who lives in Mayfair now? I tell you who lives in Mayfair, the few people who live in the Peabody buildings in Mayfair, almost everybody else is, at, is is not there.
0: So I've got a question from Laurie here who says, can I ask your views of Woodbury Down, which aims to be a mixed use development and also Tottenham Hill Village, which is relatively low end private housing? You, um, are you familiar with those? Can you talk about I know them? them
1: a little. I know them a little. Woodbury Down is a massive estate, which kind of goes between Arsenal and Tottenham territory, if you're going to put it in football terms. And it's a huge estate. And what they've been doing is building kind of flats in between the council flats that are for sale. I don't actually think that's a bad model. Something very similar is happening here um, in Summerstown. But, I, but it is really important. that that's a much better model than knocking it down like the Haygate estate, um, where basically what you do is get rid of everybody and replace it with only people who could afford to live there. I think balance, mix, rich and poor, cheek by gel, is what we have to have in London. And, you know, I, I spoke to some Americans one time who clearly weren't used to this. They'd spent millions of pounds on a a house in Notting Hill without knowing that there was a council estate 100 yards down the bottom of the road. And they didn't like it. Well, I'm sorry, sod off back home then, because that's what we do.
0: So we have uh, now Catherine Budget-Meekin is asking, uh, is there a way to stop ex-council flats and houses uh, remaining in the private sector? Could they be returned to council ownership for those who need homes most? So... Uh, that's the uh, you know, right to buy has really been uh, had a real impact on council budgets, uh, housing estates. What, what do you think of that? Um, I mean, I,
1: of course there is. There's always a way if you have a political will. I mean, you can do anything if, if you decide politically to do that. Um, I understood the right to buy in its early days. When people who'd lived on council estates for years were given the right to take over their home at a reduced rate, and that seemed fair enough, but it was it was the the provisions that were attached to it that was wrong. It was which said you could no longer invest that money in, in social housing. Um, that was the mistake. So, for every home home of social housing that we lose to right to buy, we should be replacing it with two. And and it seems to me. We've gone down from something like 40% to 15%. You'd I don't. You'd have to check the figures and don't quote me on them, but it's something like that, of social housing here in this city of ours. And so what have we replaced it by? We've replaced it by private rental properties, some of which are fine and very, very decent, others which are simply Rachmanism by a new name. Um, and of course, if what you're always trying to do is maximize the profit of something and the rent of something, the, the, the tenants are the last people you care about. And so it seems to me that what, and I do think that the, I want everyone to live not in a slum, truth be told. I want everyone to live in a place of great dignity and merit and great architectural design, which is why I love the, those Neve Brown estates and why I love Alexandria Road and why I love Trellick Tower and why I love all of those. But they've all been considered slums yeah um there's a state maiden lane very near me where i live but they were going to knock down until you know very recently it wasn't a slum it was a fantastic bit of architecture but the people who were put into it were not treated with dignity and that's what we've
0: got to do yeah yeah right now we we, we have um, we, questions are pouring in so uh this but uh, this one is slightly more of a comment because the person hasn't written the question but it's, nicholas Falk says all great cities have to foster diversity as you've uh, argued convincingly uh, but they also have to adapt to changing demands vienna has actually done well through the city council owning much of the land and supporting cooperative housing since the 1920s so uh, and then he goes on to say would robert elms support and he, he's missed out the last few words but i'm going to put in there that uh, do you think uh, you know, we are seeing a beginning of councils building more council housing. I, I, I presume you support that. I absolutely support that. And, and I absolutely, but what really matters to me
1: is that it's in inner London. Um, because I think it's all well and good building the next Thamesmead. And Thamesmead, I think is fantastic. And it will very soon be up there with, you know, Goldfinger's work or whatever. Um if we leave it alone we don't muck it up and knock it down which we've been doing to those great brutalist buildings of the 70s i'm all in favor of more council housing i think it's the only answer actually but we've got to do it in the center and we've had so many opportunities look at paddington basin why was that not social housing instead of the rotten rotten stuff that we built there um Nine Elms, another example, very close to inner London, where where we did exactly the opposite of what we should be doing. For the last 20 years, our city has been designed by Mammon and Co. It's been designed by the market. And the market has no morality, no aesthetics, no anything else. We can't let that happen.
0: Well, here are lots of people with suggestions how we don't. So... um uh vivian ramsey said i agree re-ordinary homes stop right to buy and stop posh flats yep. catherine budget meekin says let's challenge the model of capitalism which rules london yeah. michael says isn't slum a misnomer like yours my parents weren't well off but would be horrified at the thought that they lived in a slum can i answer that i, I used what? the word
1: slum on purpose because i knew it was provocative um but one man's slum is another person's home. Um, Grenfell was a slum to some of the people living around it in the five million pound houses in Notting Hill. Um, and therefore they thought it should be clad in you know, combustible plastic, um, which is what they spent the money on rather than making the people's homes better. Um, but it wasn't a slum to those who lived in it. It was home. And what we need is homes that are not fancy, that are not designer that are not really well designed if we can but also we need it's not just about homes when i was talking about slums it's also about businesses it's also about the fabric of a city so somewhere like king's cross was wild and venal and vital and so what did we do we did what we've done we put homes and i i rang up actually Uh, about one of the homes inside the the gas holders at King's Cross. And my father was a steel erector. He worked, one of the jobs he did was building gas holders, not the ones in King's Cross, ones in West London, but anyway. And I asked about one of the, buying one of the flats in the gas holders in King's Cross. And the girl in the estate agent said to me, what would you, what what, can I ask why you're, you're inquiring about this? And I said, well, because I'd like to live there. And her response was, oh, that's unusual. We're building places, not even for people to live in. It's mad. It's completely potty. And so that's what we've been doing. It's what we've done at so many of the opportunities that we've had in inner London. Um, Yes, there will be an increase in, in, in social housing, and I suspect it will be, London will grow again. It will have another ring where the poor are pushed out further to the periphery. But when I was young, I, I, my first flat that I lived in outside my mum's house was in Clerkenwell. What is the likelihood of that now? Zilch,
0: none, um, because Clerkenwell was a slum back then. Let's go. We, we uh, have got just uh, pages and pages of comments and questions. So I'll go through half a dozen at a time. Now, uh, public house says: Are Kiev, Tbilisi, Montevideo, Medellin now the arrival points for culture and urban life Possibly. Janice Goot says thank you fantastic talk and public has another question where did you dance <laughs> um, new user says I believe we have an illness in this great city and that is we have to own property so I- any comments on any of those uh, quick
1: um... I think the thing about ownership is important and I own my own house and I have a lovely house so I'm not You know, I'm not against owning homes. I have a beautiful one. Although it was considered a slum at one point. It was the street in which Withnail and I was written. Um, I think, I do think that the the social provision of housing as opposed to owning it for everybody is very important. Where did I dance? I danced in Soho mainly. I danced in the Wag Club. I danced in Billy's. I danced in all of those places. Because you could back then, before
0: they became chocolatiers. Yeah. so um, do you recognize the problems as is soda Jasper says do you recognize the problems that could come with slumming up London and the associated culture activities behavior etc that come with this so
1: um cities are noisy dirty dangerous places and they should be um, I, you know, the greatest city I've, I've ever been to outside of my own was New York in 1979 when it was bankrupt Um, Cities are not meant to be sterile places. And I think that's very, yes, there are always associated problems. But for me, they're healthier problems than those which come from a domination
0: of of, of capital. Right, so here we have uh, Robert, COVID will make us happy, London is dead, London will regenerate, it will regenerate bottom up again. It will draw in the young, the curious, the heroes of tomorrow. London is dead, and I am so happy Soho will return to London. (coughs) I I think he's reinforcing your your comments there. Uh, Jeff Burridge says, says, what is a good slum? The conversion of swathes of office to residential outside the planning system has created and is creating slums. Is the key difference, organic, unplanned versus cynical, profit motivated? What is the difference to those uh, living there? Certainly permitted development has delivered uh, new but uh, pretty hideous um, places to live.
1: And I don't want hideous places to live. That really isn't the point. Ideally, I would like wonderful places to live for everybody, but I want cheap places to live. I want it. To be possible for my son and your daughter and whoever else when they're starting out to find somewhere close to the center of town. And if that means they live in a place like Ridnell and I lived in, well, so be it. That's fine for them. That isn't fine for families of four. We should find them better homes. But if Sade could live in a place where the the bath was in the, the kitchen and the toilet was on the balcony and create what Sade went on to create. That's not a bad example of what I'm talking about. But we've tried to eradicate that, and instead we've replaced it with faux posh.
0: So, well, th- then uh, how do you respond to this? As Dorothy Newton says, I'm a member of the Neighbourhood Forum in Finsbury Park, and we're beginning to develop a neighbourhood plan. So how do we plan to keep the energy and diversity you so well describe? and that we love in our area. So when people want to change things, how do they do that?
1: I'm not a town planner, but what you have to do is put people first. You say, what do people really need and what do people really want? And I suspect what most people want is a place to call home. Um, And you have to accept, you have to have different stages of our life. When you're young and first in a city, you have very different standards to what you need when you're a family with kids and all of that. And we have to be planning for all of those people, not just a succession of two bedroom flats at 800 grand a time with a balcony for a bicycle.
0: So Fran now says, uh, here's a proposal. What is really underpinning all this lack of political bravery and solid regulation? Um, Policy is the answer. I'm watching from Berlin, where a rent control has just been introduced to try and control design by greed. Do you think we, we need more regulation? To-
1: I certainly think we do. And I think Berlin is one of the places which has been benefiting from London's ills. I know loads of young Londoners who've moved to Berlin because they can do what young people do there, because it's still been a city that has gaps and, and chances and places where you can be and start a business or a home or a love life or a disco or whatever it might be. So I think Berlin is one of those examples. I think Glasgow, for example. I know young some of my, son, my son's friends are moving to Glasgow as we speak because they can't afford to be here.
0: Tony Zellinger says, what about encouraging big pension funds that run workplace pension schemes, auto-enrolment schemes, being given access to land to build modern Peabody buildings, and uh, so more accessible so- social housing? Hear,
1: hear. I mean, the, the, the Peabody buildings, for example, of Pimlico, are a fantastic example of what we should be doing. I'm sure some of the wealthy people who live in Pimlico think they're slums, because they would be if you live in a, in a 50 million pound house, um, or even a 15 million pound house, but they are the life and soul of that, that community. They are the perfect example. They're very basic, but they're brilliant, and they're in the right place.
0: Now, Seema Manchanda says, what should we do for the people in badly clad housing, which is now unsafe and un-mortgageable, unmortg- as these are the new slums? Now their houses are worth nothing if they're living, if they've uh, bought a lease.
1: I know, and cladding was an example of what I'm talking about. Cladding was done to raise the aesthetics without raising the living standards of people. It was. It did nothing for the people in those places at all. Um, and clearly, we've either got to undo it or something. I mean, we've got to make them safe. You can't put, you can't put people in a potential crematoria, which is what Grenfell taught us. I, yeah, Grenfell really should have been an absolute lesson to all of us because I'm sorry, and I'm not going to name names, but there were many people in the borough of Kensington and Chelsea who would much rather that, that North Kensington was not part of their business because it was a slum if you lived in Chelsea. They didn't want to know Nottingdale. And that was exactly where my family were from. My, my family, my father's home was about 300 yards from where Grenfell is, where the football pitches are under the Westway. So that's my ancestral homeland. And I suspect that there were plenty of people in the south of that borough who just thought, oh, it's a slum up there. Let's, I really rather, would rather get rid
0: of it. So Gail asks, if Camden had remained down at Hill, would you have moved there? And would you have your son and daughters live in something less desirable? I, like you, love a city that is rugged and edgy, like Rome, Istanbul, Mumbai, but only as a tourist. To live in such conditions, truly, I wouldn't want to live in these places. I want my niceties and luxuries. London has become uh, what it is because of progress. Would you halt progress?
1: Perfectly valid point. And no, of course, I wouldn't want progress. But London has always had places for those who've got the money to spend on luxury. And I'm now one of them. So I live in a lovely Georgian house. But actually, when I bought this house 26 years ago, Camden was still considered a bit of a slum. It was certainly very edgy. um, And it it wasn't the sort of place that nice people bought. Um, It was where Nan and I was written. It was that street. Now, yes, it's changed in its nature over the time. And and I don't have a problem with that. I love the uh, the Nash architecture of Regent's Park. But even more, I love the fact that it's opposite the Regent's Park estate, which will be considered a sum by everybody who lives in Regent's Park. The best thing is that they're both there and that they're next to each other. That's what really matters. That's the London way.
0: And that's what we've been trying to unpick in recent years. So Pam Alexander asks, uh, uh, mixing private homes with in-council estates or older philanthropic housing association mansions creates the sort of mix Robert is talking about in the heart of London. Can the zoning ideas for planning reform allow the mixed areas of vibrancy with new artists and businesses springing up, uh, which uh, he talks about? So... um,
1: I hope so. I mean, I don't know the details of that. It isn't really my territory. But that mix, the, the street that I live in, which is called Albert Street, is probably these days, it's, it's probably 60% owner-occupied houses, 30% was bombed in the war, and is social housing. So that means that in this street, we have that London mix. But you know now that if that happened again, we would not be building social housing for poor people in a street like mine. We haven't. We stopped doing that. We stopped building homes for ordinary people in what we thought of as extraordinary places. That's what we've got to get back to. And we've also got to stop trying to rationalize everything. Make every Stop trying to make everything nice. We like it when it's grotty.
0: Yep. So uh, Tony Seneca says, why do you almost totally underestimate the energy and creativity of refugee populations that have moved into many parts of London's boring interwar suburbs, such as the London Borough of Harrow? I don't. I don't underestimate those people at all. And I'm
1: sure they'll make Harrow a much more burnt hope where I used to live, um, where I grew up, essentially, when my family moved out of Notting Hill because of the Westway, funnily enough. And, and by the way, that story is all in the book, just if you need to would like to buy a copy, um, is now an extraordinary place. I went up there recently and it's got an Afghani restaurant. It's got an energy of of street markets in the street, as it had actually when we first moved there in the 60s. Um, But it kind of went quiet. It's got a real vibrancy again, and that's fantastic. But I don't think London, like Paris, should be hollowed out. I don't think you can push all of that to the edges. I think London was at its best when St. Giles was next to Bloomsbury, was at its best when the Regent's Park estate was next to to, to Regent's Park. And and, and we have to make the centre, because if the centre's dead, a city is dying. It's like a tree. It dies from the centre out. So we've got to make sure that inner London keeps that mix. And that's what's been under threat.
0: So um, there are some questions. I, we haven't really got time to do so I apologise to everyone who uh, we haven't managed to get to. But uh, uh, Cherie Charalampas Char- says, what defines a slum? I grew up in Whitechapel on a council estate with prefabs opposite. The big houses were grubby and overcrowded, but not considered slums. Real slums were in the early 20th century. So... Uh, yeah, so some of those uh, wartime prefabs, which were temporary housing, uh, lasted for many years, and people really uh, 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 liked them, and they, they they looked after, and actually didn't become slums, but they were uh, uh, you know, temp- temporary housing. So I'm not quite sure what the answer to that particular question about defining slums, and I think you've done pretty well to uh, take us through. Uh, slums in 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 London. I'm, I'm I'm not sure I totally agree with everything you said, Robert, but you wouldn't expect oh, that for you. sure. But the uh, but I think that also one of those things about uh, you know, people are attracted to obviously places that they can afford. And if you look at you know the rookeries people were attracted uh, to London. They came there, they lived there, and they uh, uh, hopefully a lot of them made uh, something of their lives when they did so. And as you mentioned, people squatting in uh, parts of uh, uh, London in the 1960s, 70s was an uh, inexpensive way for people to uh, find find places to live, and uh, uh, they looked after them pretty well, actually, uh, all the, all those homes. And uh, you know, one does feel that at the moment uh, we uh, do have em- em- empty places, empty flats, em- empty homes, which could be put to better use. But uh, thank you very much indeed for your very passionate. Uh, 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 proposals uh, and looking just looking at the number of people who've responded on the Q&A the number of people listening it's been uh, uh, really well received and thank you very much indeed for uh, doing it for us this year in this slightly strange environment but uh, nevertheless I think we have really understood your message very well and people who weren't able to make it will be able to watch it on the websites um, in the years and, and centuries to come. Thank, thank, you, thank you very, very much.